India successfully sent a mission to Mars. It hosts a globally competitive tech center. Why do we struggle to do great scientific research? Welcome to the Pragati Podcast. We're your hosts, Hamsini Hariharan and Pavan Srinath. Every week on the show, Pavan and I discuss policy, politics and economics. Today, our guest, Sunil Lakshman, is here joining us to help us figure out how to change the way we do scientific research. Sunil is an assistant investigator at INSTEM, the Institute for Stem Cell Biology and Regenerative Medicine in Bangalore. Sunil did his PhD at the University of Washington in Seattle and worked at the University of Texas Medical Center before moving here to Bangalore. Hi, Sunil. Welcome. So, in India, we have good researchers who do work across many, many fields. But what does it take for us to do great scientific research as a country? So, essentially, there are three systemic problems that we have. So, you're right. We do great pockets of research here and there. But we don't have scale, especially for a country of this size and this economic uh, output. Uh, we are pitifully low in the scientific hierarchy. So there's a question of scale. Uh, second is the question of sheer consistent uh, quality above a baseline mean, which we largely don't have. So like you said, there are pockets which are very good, but the general average, batting average is extremely low. And uh, the third is attracting sufficiently uh, large numbers of suitably interested scientific personnel at all levels. This is from the lowest level to the highest level. So Sunil, it's not just that we are a poor country. So we can't just say, look, the United States has a ton of money. The National Institutes of Health has a budget ranging roughly around $20 billion or so. And obviously, India can't put that kind of money out there. You know, $20 billion is uh, too big a chunk uh, for India to invest in uh, any kind of research. So you're saying that our problem, we don't even bat at our... Um, so we don't level? bat at what we would say our uh, our peer group is batting at. So you gave a great example. The US NIH alone is $30 billion and the NSF, which is the bigger chunk, is close to $100 billion. So $150 billion is out of our reach. That's fine. But if you look at countries which are what you'd call mid-scale economies, they typically put in somewhere between 1% and 2.5% of their GDP on uh, research, indirectly on uh, scientific research. This is the public sector, right? And this usually, is the state-supported research. And pocket. usually the private sector, when it's dynamic, adds another... Yes. Uh, so the private one, sector one in the most dynamic scientific economies adds a substantial bit, maybe 20-30% to this number. Clearly, the public spending in India is very low. Even if we can't pin that number down well, but say we double the budget next year, do you think we'll start seeing better research? So in science, there's a there's a common um, adage, which is necessity and sufficiency. Dumping money in Indian science is right now necessary, but it's not sufficient to create an overall excellent scientific culture. But the necessity argument usually always comes first. You need something much before you can scale up and say, I can do this really well. We are right now below the the, the, the level which is uh, necessary to create a reasonably vibrant scientific economy. And this is just in terms of 
total, absolute, usable resources. And usable is an important word because the resources need to be in a way that the person using it right at the bottom of the pyramid, which is your working scientist, he, he or she should be able to use it flexibly, easily and in the direction he or she wants to go. All right. So when we talk about, you know, tens of thousands of crores, we can get confused, right? So, you know, maybe the Department of Science and Tech puts in 4,000 crores. I don't know what that translates to. But tell me how it is like if you're a principal investigator, right? You're a you're an assistant professor at a top tier institution. What does that money translate to for you and for your students? Yeah, so the, the budgets are often misleading because a very big chunk of the budget just goes into administrative costs, personnel, salaries, uh, just the salaries of the higher level people, just building maintenance, things like that, not the actual research part. Mm-hmm. But let us say you delink the salary component of this number, you're left with a small part. But as an investigator, what you need is a reasonable amount of money. This is for these typical, what you'd call high quality, small size lab, which is 8, 10, 12 people. That's the average size around the world. To run this, you need enough money to buy your consumables when you need it, not when someone else decides you need it. (laughs) And uh, enough money to be able to do different things, not necessarily in a a flowchart or an order that has been... Uh, prescribed to you, but uh, as the research demands. So, for example, you might need a computer today and some consumables tomorrow. But if your budget doesn't let let you flexibly buy either a computer or consumables, you're kind of stuck. And then you're trying to do jugad to try to see how you can get around this and get by instead of spending your time productively on your uh, research projects. Apart from money, Sunil, how do other things work? Are you able to get the best of students to work on challenging problems? Just because of our sheer size, just the sheer number of students in India, uh, even if most of the best students don't get into science, you have that tail end and some small number of them will get into science. That small percentage is a very large number in India. So in the best institutes in India, which are about half a dozen or a dozen, Mm -hmm. the student quality is actually... Uh, comparable to almost any place in the world. Right. But the so drop is very that's our That's our success, right? That is our success. I think bachelor's education, maybe to an extent master's education, the at least the cream in the country is globally competitive. The cream in the country is globally competitive, but the cream is very large. So even if 1% of the cream comes into science, sure. that 1% is two or 300 students, which is enough for the best institutes in the country. But then because of that, the drop from there to the next level institute, which you would think should be a good institute, is actually mm-hmm. quite substantial. And I guess the drop is more... Uh, visible when you go higher in the education chain, right? Yes. From yes. master's to a PhD. The drop is uh, visible from master's to PhD. And also that's where the institute quality dips dramatically. So the elite institutes will still get fairly good students. But then the immediate next rank, which might be considered a good teaching or bachelor's institute, will be abysmal in research. Because they will not get that crop of students or the other resources to sustain research. So the dip is from, you know, the top 10 and 10 to 50, in most places, it's 10, 11, 12. It's a very, very gradual decline. But from here, from let us say 10 to 15 is a, is an order of magnitude drop. Right. Whereas, say, in the United States or elsewhere, even a, a tier two public university might be doing decent work. Uh, even a public university in the 50th state in the country might still be putting out uh, a much better base quality than in India. If you take basic medical, biomedical research, 
if you take the top 10-15 institutes in India, all put together, you might get 200 researchers. Researchers tops. Okay. This is the typical size of a average to above average medical center in say America or the best places in the UK. So one center mm -hmm. is comparable to almost the entire critical mass of our entire elite scientific group. Okay. This is for a country of a billion plus. Uh, help me out in trying to understand what that, what's the implication of that? So the implications quite obvious. Essentially what you're saying is, uh, uh, not the city of Boston or San Francisco, but a, 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 a smaller research center, let's mm -hmm. say uh, Seattle or Madison or something, will have the scientific output, the high quality scientific output equivalent of India. Okay. So how, okay, then how do we change this? How do we go from, uh, I don't know, Madison, Wisconsin to at least say Boston, you know, I mean, like, if India can do what MIT and Harvard and a few others put together, I think we've arrived. Right. That would actually be true because uh, essentially for a country's scientific visibility, if you create just one or two or three large centers of excellence, the country is visible scientifically at a very high level because these are the what you'd call high profile publications or high profile patents and the spin-offs that come with that. And uh, some places have very successfully uh, started to do that. I won't take the example of China because everyone knows China is doing things at a scale we'll never match. Mm -hmm. But uh, what you'd say are smaller countries, uh, Korea, for example, are starting to create these nucleating hubs. Singapore has done this extremely well, creating this huge hub in this tiny city of four or five or six or seven different institutes that are all at a high quality, uh, high resource availability scale and created this hub, which is comparable to many of the excellent centers in the world. Okay. So this is not a huge amount of money. If you think of just one or two centers, it's very achievable because these are in the, you know, in the small hundreds of crores at most and not even in the thousands of crores. So in India, you're saying what's happening is that the same resource is just getting spread out and spread too thin. That's right. So uh, as a country, we've tended to uh, spread our resources equally amongst everyone. Uh, this Especially is across states, right? Across states, across individuals, across communities, across every possible way you can slice the pie. Uh, this is uh, very good for certain things, but it is not good to create pockets of real excellence. And so uh, our resources for institutes are spread across the country, uh, uh, even creating institutes in places where they will not be viable. Uh, and uh, the flip side of that is that uh, nucleated hubs, which could grow, uh, may not necessarily get the resources they need to grow to where they can be. Of course, these are usually the better places, so they have comparatively better resources, but the scaling doesn't work. Let's get back to, um, say, your lab as an institution, right? So you, you're talking about this small uh, lab of 8 to 12 people who are working together, and which is how scientific research works in most parts of the world. Mm -hmm. What all? What else do you need to make this team successful? Uh, I mean, one is you need money the way you want it um, at all times, right? Um, what else? What What are the other ingredients that need to go in? So, so you, for you to compete with your peers in the UK, US or UK, yes. so what do you usually need? it's it's a combination of three things. You obviously you've mentioned students. You need good students and. 
at least the better places in India have good enough students. So that's not the biggest concern. The second is um, sufficient infrastructure in terms of uh, the kind of equipment you need. That is becoming better in many places. But the flip side to that is this equipment requires uh, staff, technically trained staff to be able to operate it. We severely lack in that. And we also, most institutes don't have ways to hire and retain staff at that technical level as opposed to, say, a, a, a lead investigator level. So that's a, a severe problem. Okay. And the third is uh, money, which is... Uh, to be used the way the scientist desires to use it. So typically, for example, if you write a grant here, you have to list out all the things you're planning to do and box them in different categories. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, you more or less have to fit within this frame because you're not given that entire money, even if your grant is approved, it's given piecemeal a little bit this year, and then you show progress and then a little more is given next year, which really restricts how freely you can uh, push projects forward and, and uh, make quick decisions and, and turn quickly. And science is these days working at, you know, in hyperdrive the past 20, 30 years. And for that, you need to be able to move quickly, work quickly, collaborate with people across the world quickly. Now, that's usually a challenge because it's hard to invite people over from outside the country or for you to travel. So these are usually what you'd call small irritants, which mm -hmm. add up in uh, many different ways. And these are not actually resource intensive irritants, but usually are the biggest drag to your program. Aren't research grants even in the US becoming so absurd now that you actually you need to do all of the research, you probably need to publish the paper as well. And then you get the money to do all that work. Yeah, so this is very true. But the good thing is everybody, including the funding agencies know this. So the general understanding is, yes, you write a grant to do say you're going to do something, but you've done most of it. So but then when the you get the next thing. thing, when you get your money for this, you actually do the next thing and get on with life. And part of that is, this may be unique to the US, but to some extent in other parts of the world, is that when you get a grant, it's given to you for three or five years and it's usually given to you completely. Okay. Which means now you have that money and you can pretty much do what you want with it. And the measure of your productivity after three or five years is at the end of three or five years when you show what you've done in terms of patents or publications or whatever else you've done. All right. In India, we are tied very closely to the finance ministry and the financial year cycle. So let's say you get a grant for one crore. Okay. This year, you're not going to get one crore. You're going to get 10 or 20 lakhs. At okay. the end of this financial year, you're going to have to write a detailed report and user certificates to say what you've done with this 20 lakhs in order to get the next 10 or 20 lakhs for the next year and okay. so on and so forth. So if your project actually requires something which you've asked for and you get one fourth of that, you you can't actually do one fourth of what you intend to do. It's usually one tenth or one twentieth. So, okay. so this, this uh, understanding, which I think all research agencies work with in many parts of the world, um, hasn't yet fully percolated our uh, our um, um, bureaucracy. Even though many exceptional scientists uh, are trying to change that, the the you know things change very slowly. So let's spend some time on that the, the science bureaucracy of the country. Right? Um, how do how does this grant? making process work? Do you have your actual peers who are evaluating uh, some of these proposals? Do you have uh, permanent bureaucrats who are evaluating this? Uh, how, how does the system work? Where, at 
till what level are scientists sort of respected so this, in this is system? great this is another great question uh, actually there's no huge problem with the evaluation of grants uh, most of the bigger agencies have come up with fairly transparent nice ways to evaluate grants which are done by your peer scientists so you have committees which are made of scientists which evaluate and even approve the grants okay. but the buck so give me an example of, like so there could be a uh, a program say on malaria research that's right so if you are a malaria researcher the dbt or the dst might have some programs on malaria with grants available you send your proposal there it's a standard scientific proposal it's sent to uh, whatever experts are there in the country they read it they comment on it and they'll uh, criticize the weaknesses and then the committee says okay this is a good grant but then they can't actually award the money okay they approve the grant and okay. you will even get a letter saying this is an excellent grant and it's approved but the money usually is tied at a different level uh, entirely with the uh, major indian bureaucracy so another difference here between say the nih and here is let's say the nih has a budget of 30 billion a year that entire money is entirely up to the nih to decide how to spend when to spend where to spend okay once that money has been allotted it's this here though the money is uh, it's a little more nebulous you, science is supposed to have this many crores but the agency itself doesn't necessarily control all the money it has to go through either the finance ministry or some other level of bureaucracy dealing from the entire process okay and so so you notionally be, get like a technical approval of your project that's correct but the money can come however whenever it can come whenever however sometimes uh, you'll even see things like financial year closes on march 31st you'll get a chunk of money on march 28th which you have to spend by march 31st wow or you need to closes. utilize it in the same yes, time yes because the financial year closes on the 31st so in two days what can you do with the money this is not always the case this is a slightly more dystopian uh, view that i've painted but this is also real it happens uh, but essentially the 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 doers of science have been dealing from the actual money part even though the scientific evaluation process and everything else is actually getting much better in india so how do some good institutions uh, get around this i mean can you get around this like for example uh, would uh, in stem or the national center for biological sciences have say you know their own uh, sort of liquidity funds where you know if there's vagaries in the union government money coming in you have a buffer which comes in sort of yeah, helps so you and then goes out this is a fantastic question and this is actually what i think most institutes need having money that they can use the way their institute deems fit there's actually very little soft money buffer money flexible money in any of the institutes uh, typically okay. what people do is the better investigators write multiple grants and hope that at any given point of time one or two of them will have something in them so that you can uh, stay afloat so you're usually running very hard to move forward a little bit on that note let's take a short break and come back after a bit shunya van shunya van shunya van billion dollar acquisition another copycat startup founder no the tech world in india is surely moving double the speed of this voiceover tune in to shunya one every tuesday to catch us talking to the smartest people we know on the ibm podcast website app or wherever you get your podcast from Welcome back to the Pragati podcast. We're talking to Sunil Lakshman today on how to propel India towards great scientific research. Let me change gears again. Uh 
this is probably from the 90s. I had a few friends, relatives who were working in uh, physics and chemistry. Uh, so the, one of the jokes was that, uh, you know, if somebody wanted a small piece of equipment or some reagents, in IISE, they would need three months to get that uh, to their lab. In TIFR in Mumbai, they might need one month to get that. And sitting in the US, they might take three days to get what they want. Has such situations changed in the country? How does it work? So if you're a student and you're trying to plan out your experiments, how hard is your life today? It's uh, it's definitely become better. Okay. But it's not as good as it can be. So there are many things that take an awful lot of time, uh, mostly because it's not the institution's fault. Let's say you raise an order, but the due process requires you to now get quotes from half a dozen people and then uh, justify why or why why not you don't want the lowest priced item. Now, that lowest priced item might be a piece of crap that can't do anything uh, just because somebody says it is similar to what you've got. But then you spend all this time with paperwork saying, this is why I don't want this. I need to justify this. It goes back and forth, back and forth. In the end, it gets approved. Uh, but you've spent a good amount of time and energy trying to solve that problem. Uh, the second is that, you know, it's a supply chain problem for many of the bigger companies. Your critical mass is so small of people using many of these common reagents that many major companies don't have uh, large distribution units in India. You have to wait to import them. And then once it's something that's imported, it's dealing from your institute completely. It goes to customs, customs treats everything <laughs> the same way. And you're, you know, uh, telling this customs agent that, uh, you know, I have these very important cell lines here, if you keep it in the storage room, they will all die. And he is not going to listen to you in any particular... And especially yeah. if it's biologically sensitive, then you're in... Yeah. In fact, if it's biologically sensitive, it's a double whammy. You have to justify why it's sensitive but not dangerous, <laughs> uh, by which time that thing has probably died and it's useless. So you're sometimes doing the same thing three times to do it once. So you're saying that basically in lab, you face the same problem that I would if I'm ordering something from AliExpress. Sometimes, <laughs> oftentimes, right? You don't know if your food is going to show up or not or what condition it's going to be in. And some of this will actually just improve with scale. If you have so many more researchers doing this, some things become routine. The second thing is, uh, again, delinking the bureaucracy from this. You let the scientist decide what he or she wants. Uh, as long as the scientist is not pocketing the money, if the scientist has got a piece of equipment that costs 10% more than a competitor's, but that equipment has come and is being used, that should be fine because you're doing that to produce science. Instead of justifying, this is a, a popular term, it's called L1. L1 is the lowest yeah. uh, price that any item has in a tendering process. So if you can get rid of some of these things, you'll actually do better. Cheaper is not always better. So in a sense, a presumption of trust has to play a larger role in a lot of these processes. That's right. right? Uh, the, the bureaucratic process is designed because you don't trust the person on the other end. So you that's correct. want these rigid rules that people need to follow so that, you know, money is not laundered or uh, mismanaged. So this way. is a problem in India where uh, to avoid mismanagement or wastage, you tend to bring things down to the, uh, the, the lowest common mean instead of trying to allow at least pockets of excellence to reach the highest possible level. We tend to bring down as opposed to rise, uh, lift everyone up. That's a, a dichotomy that uh, all of us know and face all the time. So, Okay. For, I think, a lot of our listeners, 
the life of a researcher can be far removed and you know there's a lot of idealization that happens you know even tri- science in the popular telling is very triumphalist right i mean it's about the successful experiment but not really about the 100 failures that preceded it so can you tell us a few more maybe stories or like on how hard it is to be a scientist in the country yeah uh, that's that's a nice question again so like you said science is mostly a lot of grunt work you have this great idea maybe maybe not but even then to test it out you're going through hundreds of failed experiments you're trying to figure out what's going on and especially today a lot of science is uh, what you hear uh in conferences let's say you've got this idea you're working on it it's not yet published so you know it's not published but how do you know other people are not working on it or have come up with something you right. might the best way to do that is to go for conferences uh meet the best researchers in your field and like we've just said the critical mass in india is very small so for any given area the critical mass is you and the three other people you know who work on this in this country right. but there are obviously large conferences large societies that work on all of this and say a typical phd would involve the phd student going to one or two or three of the conferences of their field the good ones in by definition in uh, in any field of research that's being done in india or abroad so let's say a phd student wants to go for a conference okay now typically uh, institutes or uh, agencies will allow a phd student to go for one international conference all right this is already inadequate but let us say that is your uh goal you go for one and it's usually given at the end of your phd not the beginning so it's kind of useless because you've done what you have to do <laughs> so maybe uh, it's good for professional networking for them to land their so job so they can land their next job but it's not as good for your current uh, job okay. but to go for this you need money now most grants don't support uh, students for international conferences so let's say your advisor scrounges around and finds different pots of money and manages to register you for the conference you still have to fly there okay for this you apply for a travel fellowship and you're allowed maybe one every 3 years or 5 years let's say you apply for that now you don't get that fellowship before you go okay but still on faith you will buy some ticket and go but then you'll realize that and you have to you're just earning what 30 30,000 or something sometimes right. your uh, advisors a- able to pull out some funds and uh, buy the flight tickets in the assumption that it'll get reimbursed when you get your travel fellowship but then you find out you can only fly in air india uh, because <laughs> in- invariably agencies insist on this rule even though air india might be priced twice as much as uh, uh, indigo or whatever else now you fly on air india and then you come back and then instead of getting a full reimbursement if your uh, flight was uh, 1 lakh you will get 80000 because that's the sanctioned amount okay. now what are you supposed to do this is already a bit of a bottleneck and for this you filled out multiple forms you applied now you have to send your original boarding pass and proof of attendance of your conference and everything else now let us say by chance you've lost that one boarding pass that you <laughs> uh, shoved into your pocket while trying to run into the flight you don't get that reimbursement so now what do you do so this is this is but a very small thing which should be largely streamlined the, the way you do a travel grant is say i've registered to apply for this conference uh i want to go for this conference here's my uh, plan to attend it and a seamless process will say in 3 weeks or 4 weeks you're either approved or not approved to go for the conference and you're allowed to go for this uh depending on what you're uh, going to show at the conference it's obviously okay. not should, it shouldn't be a holiday but if you are showing that you're going for this great conference you've been asked to give a talk there you need to attend it Uh, there should be better ways to do this at this level uh, other than the boarding pass that <laughs> and the and the sheer effort to get this at the end of which you don't know if you'll get it or not 
so you have to pl- basically you have to plan now six months or a year in advance and then hope for the best and try to go for it and despite this you know a lot of our students and uh, scientists manage to find a way to get around this and try to go and also some other simple things like many institutes give a, an allowance for scientists to attend a conference here but that's a flat one lakh a year or 1.5 lakhs a year okay which is a flat you know life doesn't work in these fixed flat sum supposing it's 1.3 lakhs and you've got only 90000 or a lakh what do you do it's a challenge so uh, and these are very small challenges that can easily be fixed if you have some ways to deal with some of these things so better networking ease of bringing people over uh, if you have a collaborator or you want to collaborate with someone it's very hard to invite that person to come and attend uh, a conference in india or stay with you and work with you for a week or two there's an enormous amount of paperwork at the end of which you don't know if you'll get permission or not so sunil something that i've noticed is that we have very few postdoctoral research positions in india isn't this sort of a a missing link in your entire science ecosystem between say a phd student and uh, an assistant professor for example the culture of a postdoctoral system is at best a fleeting idea in the country again very few institutes in india have a, what you would call a semi healthy postdoctoral uh, system where there are postdoctoral fellows they have some kind of an institutional support system and can uh, do high quality science Uh, the agencies actually have created postdoctoral fellowships so if you want to be a postdoc in india you can be in terms of getting your salary or fellowship but uh, very few places have a healthy postdoctoral culture so this so is they'll again be, they'll end up being treated as yeah, so again a bit of a chicken and egg problem because there's no culture i think many investigators don't really know how to deal with postdocs right. do you let them flourish give them a lot of freedom let them run with their ideas or do you treat them like a superior technician or do you treat them like very junior scientists where they have to report to you every morning this is uh, this is an ongoing process but you're absolutely right every major scientific culture has a nice cohort of uh, an active postdoctoral system and that is also a way for Uh, individuals to transition then to the next stage which is from being a postdoc to being a completely independent investigator and the system in india just doesn't know how to deal with postdocs right now you if you do a postdoc in india let us say you do it and then you apply for a job uh, the random university is going to think why didn't this person go abroad to do a postdoc <laughs> this person has to be terrible what do i do with this person so uh, so there's this suspicion for the homegrown product right no as as a as a culture we're anyway suspicious about everything we don't uh, it's a low trust society and um in in every aspect of life we don't trust anything even from the 10 rupee note that we get we suspect if it's forged or not so uh and even you know a, a, a note that you get it doesn't mean that that is has any value because tomorrow it might be worthless so um as a low <laughs> trust <laughs> as a low trust society um, it is it is difficult but uh, this will again uh, change if we have a slightly larger scale more people doing research and a better metrics to evaluate individuals productivities like we've talked about this 10 year system but you right. could have various other metrics to evaluate whether a person has put out some thought and something useful or is wasted time so so but it's needed you need people at a postdoctoral level and you also need uh, people who are highly qualified at a technical level so these are technical staff scientists and so on we don't have a culture of employing such people nor do we have positions or funding for such people 
Right. But on the flip side, you have most, I think, IITs, IISC and many others who want postdoctoral experience, which means that compulsorily people have to leave the country if they want a career in uh, science. Right. And, you know, what? A, and correct me if I'm wrong, you also have some institutions where uh, assistant professors who are supposed to be independent investigators play the role of a postdoctoral researcher and eventually sort of work for some super boss scientist who runs this, you know, multi-investigator lab of some sort. Yeah. Now, I mean, there's a little bit of the large pyramid scheme in every part of the world. What you <laughs> want to ensure is that the pyramid is not the default, but rather the exception. Right. Uh, in You're right. In many places in India, the pyramid is the default and not the exception. So now that has, that is a whole different problem. But uh, you're right though that in order to get, uh, so, you know, the India, the pyramid is actually a very steep pyramid. There are like, like we've said earlier, 10, 15, 20 good institutes, right? Mm -hmm. So everybody wants to be in those institutes. And there isn't a small dip in the next year, which is still a good place to be, but not, I mean, the, the, the chasm is huge between a premier institute and the next level of institute. So if everybody wants to be in these premier institutes, obviously the institutes can demand five, six, seven, eight years of postdoctoral work, the stellar work record here and there. And that will mean that any qualified person in India will have to go abroad and do this stellar postdoc in order to even be uh, considered in an institute in India. I mean, on paper, sometimes the requirements to get a position in a top institute in India is harder or uh, more competitive than what you would think of in a top institute outside the country. Right. Uh, there's this old joke that uh, my college director used to say that uh, he and his close buddy were both chemical engineers who were trying to get a um, faculty job in India. And the only difference between him and his uh, friend, who was probably more had better papers than him and so on was that when he applied for the job he applied from Purdue so his postal address was Purdue and the other guys was Nungambakam in Chennai and he said I got it and he did not yeah this is this remains true this is a problem and many of these problems will be solved as we increase the general batting average of science in India so All right. yeah. okay thanks Sunil thanks so much for coming in it was an absolute pleasure to have you Great. Thank you very much, Pavan. That's it for this episode of the Pragati Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please send it to us on Twitter. I'm on Twitter as at Hamsani H. Pavan is at Zeus is Dead. You can subscribe to the Pragati Podcast on the IVM Podcast app or any other app that you listen to your podcasts on. And of course, check out more analysis and views on thinkpragati.com. Excuse me, bhaiya. Excuse me. Bole, madam. Menu mein kya hai? Menu mein seen unseen hai, podcast hai, on course hai, Cyrus hai, Made in India, Rediscovery Project, Empowering Series, Sex Vex hai, IBM Likes hai, Simplified hai, Keeping It Queer hai, Drinks and Destinations hai, My Neighbor Zuckerberg hai, or The Fan Garage hai. Aapko kya chahiye hai? Uh, ek baar repeat kar denge kya? Repeat, repeat nahi karta hum. Aap jao, ibmpodcast.com pe aur suno ye sab. Ya fir download karo unka app. Sab aapke unglio pe.